Are you a hybrid athlete who wants to learn more about how to combine your strength and endurance training? Well, I've written a new book, The Science of Hybrid Training. In this book, I provide insight into the misconceptions surrounding strength and endurance training by distilling the past 50 years of research and drawing on the conversations I had with great scientists, coaches, and athletes on the Progress Theory podcast. This book is essential reading for hybrid athletes and coaches who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show. Podcasters, welcome back. It's the Progress Theory podcast here. And today it's the Legend Series. And on this episode, we are joined by Dr. Bernadette Dancy. Now, I've known Bernie for a number of years. Uh, When we first met, we were both teaching at St. Mary's University. Uh, She was a senior lecturer in health and exercise science. Since then, she's left academia and now works as a health coach and running coach, where she works with a number of high-profile people that are struggling with stress, depression, anxiety, and teaches them how to reframe their perceptions on stress and ultimately develop a stress management strategy to help improve their lifestyle. This episode is a really personal episode. Both Bernie and I discuss our experiences with stress and find that our experiences actually have a lot of similarities. Stress can really build up and it gets to a point where all the stresses in our life just become too overwhelming. And I recommend anyone that feels they're reaching their limit to seek the help out of someone like Bernie who can really help reframe their relationship with stress and ultimately lead them to a better lifestyle. With that, I really hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please leave a review on our iTunes and on our Spotify because we love doing these podcasts. Please check out all of our content on YouTube and subscribe and follow us on Instagram. So this is the Progress Theory Legend Series. This is episode two, and you're joined by Dr. Bernadette Dancy. Well, Bernie, thank you for coming on to the Progress Theory podcast. We were just uh, chatting regarding how we know each other and the similarities of our stories. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted you on this podcast. You were one of the first people that I thought about when I started the Legend series. Do you want to just give like a, a little bit of an overview of yourself and uh, your current role? Then we can sure. Go from there. Being, yeah, yeah, definitely. Being called a legend just makes me feel old, Phil. Um, <laughs> but, but, but that's true. I am getting old. And that's the thing in my head. I still think I'm 24 and I'm 40 this Same. year. So that was a bit of a shock to the system. <laughs> Yeah, so so we know each other because we went back, we we worked at the same academic institution. So for about 15, 16 years, I was a lecturer, I guess, across two subjects, which really has led me to where I am today. So my undergraduate degree was biology, joint honours with sports science. But I always had this kind of real fascination with the interaction between body and mind. So I love biology. It just always made sense to me. So I studied Mm. human biology. But then I got really gripped with sports psychology and exercise psychology as I went through my degree so that kind of led me to doing a PhD I was invited back to do a PhD in fact I was in America I was coaching soccer I was in America coaching soccer for the MLS um, at the end of my degree and I was out there and I had this offer of a job to be like a high school soccer coach at a school and then I also got an email at the time from St Mary's one of my lecturers saying look you know we've got this PhD studentship come up we really think you should interview for it and I'm like well I'm, I'm in America and I'm now I've got this potential job and so it's a real like ah what do I do and I just remember we I was really struggling whether I stay or go back it's one of those real like crossroads in your life and mm. you know could have gone either way but anyway I, I was like well I'm never going to do a PhD if I don't take this opportunity so so I took the opportunity and my PhD was in sports psychology just because that was on the table and I was I did love that area at the time it's definitely a fascination like what was it that made people men on and perform at such a high level you know, what was it about that grit and that kind of like leave everything on the table and, and just push yourself to the death? And I was fascinated by that. But equally, I was fascinated by what was it that made other people kind of suffer and struggle? And what was it in them that made them maybe not make it some elite athlete? So I kind of, yeah, went through my PhD and did that. And now I'm, after 15, 16 years of doing that, I there's lots of reasons, but I left academia. I think I, I burnt out, broadly speaking, burnt out with academia, but 
burnt out physiologically as well. I, I definitely had a, a massive event in my life where I just had enough chronic stress. Mm. Um, there was some. I was diagnosed with PTSD, so post-traumatic stress disorder after my dad died when I was 24, actually. Probably why I still think I am 24, because it's mm. a significant time in my life. And I think there was just so much that came to a head, and it made me realise that I wasn't dealing with that, but I just buried my head in work and life and just kept going. And I was always that person that pushed and pushed and pushed, you know, the next thing, the next goal, what can else can you do? And and I'm always like, I guess war stress is a badge of honour, like most of us do, you know, that we, we strive and we overcome it and we go to the next level, but what's next, next level. And I got kind of sucked into that environment and, but it eventually it kind of, it broke me. And then I decided, that things needed to change I had a real look at myself and my life and my children were quite young at the time so Callum was just starting school and Ewan was like 15 16 months old and unfortunately the way the world is being a woman it's it's not really set up for us to to do everything as much as we like to pay lip service and say yeah you can be a mom and you can have the career for me it didn't work you know I I couldn't do all the things and it, it was too much so I made a decision to set my own business and be a health and exercise coach just taking all of the things over the 15, 16 years that I'd learned in academia and was like, you know what, rather than just teach this, what if I just went to the coalface and and delivered it? And and so I spent the last four years, three, four years now doing that, working with clients and specialising actually in stress management. So looking at behaviour change and lifestyle changes to manage stress, which was, I know it's kind of like interesting because that's what happened to me. And But when I went into health coaching, it was like, well, who do you want to help most? And the advice you kind of get when you do that coaching kind of training and it's like, well, who were you like four or five years ago? Essentially what happens is you end up wanting to help because you learned so much about you and what happened to you four or five, six years ago. And that was drove me. Like it really lit me up. because so I was like, okay, I made these mistakes and these things didn't work. And this is what I now know. And this is how I can help these people. So mm. it's been a real journey and I would never go back. I don't think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. During the sort of last few years of your PhD and and working in academia aside from obviously going full in with your work what were the different life stresses that were affecting you at that time that just sort of overwhelmed you because I know you did a lot of long distance running or mm. being a parent while being yeah in academia there was lots just of different things going around, around. Yeah. yeah 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 I think do you know what I think when you're in your early 20s and and my husband Paul like we weren't married at the time but we were both doing PhDs at the same time and you're mm. very we were very blessed and very lucky for that to happen because I think when you are doing a PhD it is your life it becomes your world and it becomes this thing where you know you work all day with the students whatever and then it was like well I can stay at work till eight o'clock and work on my research and that was a luxury and you know I might go for a run after work and then stay till eight o'clock go home have dinner repeat and it just became this cycle of repeat mm. and because Paul was doing the same kind of thing it wasn't an issue because that's what we did and we respected that's what we both needed to do to get your PhD done. And I think you can get away with that. And I got away with it for quite a long time and because there were no other stressors as such, you know, that was it. It was eat, sleep, train, do your PhD, repeat. And that could happen. And then I think when my dad did die, so I was like two years into my PhD when my dad died. And it was such a significant event just to briefly touch on it because it's quite a poignant thing that it impacted rest of my kind of life decisions was my dad was only 47 so really young and as I hit my 40s I'm like shit I was actually quite young I used to wind him up about being old but I was 24 and he was 47 and he had a, a sudden cardiac arrest so he basically went to bed and had a cardiac arrest and my sister called me and I guess in those situations like you when you do your first day training you go into autopilot so for me it was like okay this is happening I knew what to do everything shuts down and it's tunnel vision and you just handle it. And so I started CPR with him and we worked on him for a period of time. I couldn't tell you how long it was, but until the paramedics came. And then um, it's actually fire brigade who got there first. And unfortunately, by the time we got to hospital, he didn't make it. And I think that was such a significant turning point in my life for obvious reasons. I mean, losing parent mm. is significant enough, but to watch somebody die in front of your eyes, it's just... It's, you can't even begin to explain what that feels like or how that how powerless you are in that situation and to go from being somebody who always felt in control like I think up until that point in my life I'd never quote unquote failed anything 
Do you know what I mean? I passed my driving test the first time. Any exam I did, I just got through it. You know, literally everything had fallen in place. Got my PhD. I got into that studentship. Everything just happened. And suddenly I was presented with this like, yeah, but you didn't fix that or you didn't that you didn't you failed. So it was like a real traumatic situation. But then I internalized it. That was my fault in some way. And so no matter what anyone would say to me, I think in like, well, yeah, but you went there and what if I've done this and what if I've done that? And, you know, at the time I was diagnosed with PTSD, but again, I was like, yay, I'll, I'll deal with that later because mm. I'm, I'm doing my PhD and now I need to do that. And I kind of just blocked it out. And that's quite a common reaction to PTSD. It's an, an avoidance strategy because it's so overwhelmingly potent and traumatic mm. that you can't process it in real time. So you, you kind of just block it out um, because the triggers and the flashbacks are so strong that you have to build the life up around you that protects you from that. So I blocked it all out. And then I guess throughout my PhD, it was always that kind of thing, like I lost love for it because yes, I was struggling with that, but it was also like, this doesn't mean anything anymore. So my PhD was, it was in stress and anxiety, but it was on elite footballers. So professional footballers looking at you know, uh, that whole kind of being dropped as a substitute. So the whole concept of you have to perform well, even though you're told you're rubbish. So you've been dropped, but you've got to perform well. Mm. So my PhD was looking at the impact of that decision on someone's professional career and the anxiety of coming on to perform well, despite being told they weren't very good. And to me, I was like, yeah, but who, cares, who gives a shit about that? I, I just genuinely couldn't care less because I was like, yeah, but people are dying. Like people are dying and I've seen someone die. And my dad actually died quite young, but if you look at his history, you know, it was stress predominantly that, that contributed to his death. So the re- the night he died was a weekend I'd gone home with Paul just to visit family. But my granny, his mum, had had a cardiac arrest on the Friday night. My dad died on the Sunday night oh, well, because, yeah, and she was still in hospital, so we couldn't tell her. Mm. So we had to lie to her for weeks. He was at work. She's like, why is he visiting me? Because she survived and he didn't. And so I think, yeah, when you were doing a PhD, it becomes your world and everyone in an academic environment, that's the focus. And it, it, it just wasn't for me. And I think when you're wrestling with that, but you know that I knew I couldn't leave it because um, I wanted to finish for him. And also I just wanted to get it done to get on with my life because I knew at that point mm. I wanted to go down a different path. I knew I wanted to go down the health and exercise psychology route and I just kind of needed to get this done. <laughs> I was like, to get this out of my life so I can actually do what makes a difference. Um, yeah. I think that's what happened to me anyway. What about you? Well, we, we, it does sound that there's similar feelings towards certain events within the, both of our PhD journeys. Definitely hearing your story made me reflect on how you said, oh, I, by that point at 24, I hadn't really failed at anything. And referring back when I particularly struggled, I think I realized just how privileged I was growing up because I, you have sort of good and bad times, but they didn't necessarily uh, completely derail where I was going in life. Mm. And so I, I don't think I like well and truly failed in the thing. I've been incredibly lucky with everything I had. My first funeral that I ever went to, I was 31. So I'd never really experienced sort of stress like, like that at all. And then when it came to my... So I, at the time, had become program director for the undergraduate degree of strength and conditioning at a time where we lost three members of staff. So then I was covering so much work and learning a new job at the time. I think at the time I was just like, look, this is really hard, but, you know, I've just been promoted. This is still good. I'm just going to keep going. Very similar to you. Mm. It's like, yeah, it's stress, but, you know, whatever. I'm heading in the direction I want to go. You just stick up a lift. You just keep going. And then I'd had a, an extension because of, I was just not able to get the work done. So everything was becoming sort of very last minute. Uh, and then me and my well, now wife moved into our new home. And then a week later, she then collapsed and had meningitis. So that was particularly tough because it came to a point where physically I wasn't doing too well, but I was just trying to get through it. And then all of a sudden when my wife became very ill, it's just sort of like everything kind of mm. collapsed. It became very overwhelming. And I was trying to do something which I was like, you know, I've got other things to sort out. I, I just 
but I know I needed to do this for what I perceived as, you know, get the PhD done because then I can have a career and then, you know, support my family and all that. Yeah. And funny enough, that was at the same time as, I don't know if you spoke to Paul when they started threatening everyone with redundancy. Yeah. So that happened in like the same, yeah. what, two to three months? Mm. So it just became one of those situations where I think I've just been very lucky. I've had good and bad times. And then all of a sudden I just had a point in my life where it became so overwhelming, the stress from all different angles. If I could have each individual stress on its own, I might have been able to handle it better Yeah, because it all came at once. All that could go through my head was I wasn't good enough. I couldn't handle the stress. Yeah. But maybe you know I was making it worse by just trying to keep going keep going not really addressing it you know just get this PhD done don't address it wait until that's done then you can sort of address it Mm. but it kind of you know there's a that takes a bit of time so you know it's a long period just to uh feel incredibly stressed it's just I'll go for it yeah it's overwhelming I think people don't appreciate I think and this is the problem you we don't tell people you probably didn't tell people at the time did you it probably wasn't very obvious to people um, I would tell people briefly how I was feeling, but then I was trying to just crack on very stoic. Yeah. So then maybe my actions wasn't matching what I was saying. So then mm. people's perception of, of me was like, oh, he's just, he's all right. It's just cracking on. Yeah. But the, the, what I was thinking was for some reason during that time, I kept trying to like find like an illustration to match how I was feeling. Everyone goes through like, highs and lows everyone's been like really upset because of some issue and I certainly had sort of bad points but then I've what I felt during this period was completely different to that Mm. um because the the way I could describe it was if it was represented by a picture it would be a person smiling and then they would have sort of dream bubbles moving away from their head and then in the cloud the big cloud of dream bubble would just be a really aggressive gray scribble and that is the best way I could describe how With I a lot of expletives <laughs> yeah just but I think that's the thing isn't it it's that whole face that we put on and I and I would have seen you around the time that I burnt out and broke down and 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 I remember feeling like you described is is that there was an external face and there was an internal front and Paul didn't even know like my own husband and mm. Haley probably didn't know about you because you don't want to worry people and also I didn't know and like you probably I didn't really know what's happened to me. I just thought I was failing because I was like, well, you can't let people down. I was part-time lecturer, but part-time ended up being 40 hours a week because when I was in, I was teaching. And when I was, how do I get my prep done? Well, I've got to get the kids to bed and they weren't sleeping. My kids were terrible. Like they never slept. So I'd eventually get them to bed at 10, have to finish writing the lecture for the next morning. Probably the kids were awake a couple of times in the night. So I was working on about four, five, six hours sleep, plus then trying to do some running. And it's like, no one knew. And it was just an external thing that I was like, yeah, but if, if you don't suck it up and do the work, you'll just be that woman who couldn't hack being a mum and and still be good at your job. And things will start to slip. So I kind of just was like, well, yeah, we just get on with it. No one else seems to be struggling. And actually, it's interesting because it was at a time at the, at the in the institution that we both worked at where things were generally quite good. It was the romantic period where like we were all brilliant, like it was really good. And like you said, there was a bit I of a crash that after that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it was the good times, right? But we were probably yeah. all getting to the point where I think collectively there were a lot of people struggling. And I think not that I was caused a lot of other people to come out and say they were struggling too, but I remember that when I did eventually go it was literally hands up I can't do this anymore and it was a conversation with Paul to say that I'm, I, I need to this this has to change plus I wasn't seeing the kids you know I was dropping them off at nursery at seven picking them up at six seeing them for an hour putting them to bed so I was like what why am I doing this this is just mm. stupid so if you know other people whatever works for the people for, for me it was an additional stressor and but no one knew and when I would go to work, I then was, you know, taking patients from the GP. So we, I'd set up this healthy lifestyle clinic. We won a contract at a local council where it was brilliant. You know, we had this connection with GPs where they'd send patients to us. We'd take them into the gym. And that was all at my additional, that was just voluntary. Like that was just on top of, you know. So because I loved doing it, I was like, I just love this work. And, but it was breaking me simultaneously. And when I eventually left or took time off, I remember saying to them, I need some time off. 
it was like, yeah, I'll take a couple of weeks and I'll be fine. And then, of course, a couple of weeks just wasn't enough. And it was a real, like, you need more time. So I took six months and it was the best thing I ever did in my life because it gave me six months to do a lot of work on myself, really reflect and just get better because there's a there's a side to stress which we don't see, which is the physiological underpinning to it. So for me, yeah, there was PTSD and I, maybe even with you, with Hayley, you know, there's trauma in those experiences that we experience with loved ones any sort of near death experience can bring about that trauma and it goes inwards we can emotionally maybe look on the surface that we're handling it but physiologically it changes things you know neurologically mm. chemically and just the levels of cortisol that we got we can't feel that it's insidious it's in us you know it's a bit like hypertension I used to say to patients all the time that you've got hypertension you can't see it but you need to change your lifestyle but because people don't see it and same as a temperature it's the same with cortisol and what was going on physiologically for me was that I needed that time to, to reboot and to kind of just recover and six months helped me to do that. But I learned that even though I'd spent years teaching, you know, the benefit of say exercise for depression, anxiety, and I taught health mm. and exercise psychology. And even to this day, I talk about it in my own kind of podcast and the work I do with people. It's not spoken about that. Hang on a minute. There's so much more that we need to learn about stress and what happens is in society that more and more people are experiencing this, what you experience, what I experience, but we just end up suppressing it and adding other stuff to the equation. Like we add exercise to it. It's marketed, it's promoted. Um, I see so many people talk about it all the time, but for me, I needed to look into the research of stress and the physiology of stress and go, what is it my body needed? And I remember going to the GP and just explaining to her, like, I'm really, I'm broken. And she's like, okay, well, sounds like you've got depression. Have some antidepressants. I was like, you're not listening. I felt exasperated because I was like, I feel depressed, but I know there's more to it. I know from my experience, academia, physiology, et cetera. I was like, can you just do a blood? There must be a blood test to diagnose something. She's like, man, not really. Da, da, da. And I was like, can you do some bloods? Because I feel like there's more going on. And of course, my blood profile came out. Loads of things were out of whack. So physiologically, I was essentially overtrained and burnt out at the same time. And if you can kind of work on those things, as well as the emotional side of stress, then you can get better quite quickly. But we don't even talk about it. We don't tell people, you would never have known. I remember when I left, people were like, but you don't get stressed. I'm like, it's because I'm good at hiding it. Mm. <laughs> but all of you are stressed. Mm. And then then I left and and people drop like flies I remember people just now and then reaching out to me going yeah I've left I can't do it and I was like fuck mm. it seems hard. like uber common in academia mm. at the moment yeah like really out. common because I always found that outside of academia people have this perception that oh you only teach for your semesters and then oh you've got this really long yeah. holiday and it's so yeah. far from that and yeah. even even now, like the fact that we're, we're in a pandemic and we're working from home considerably more, I'm at my desk before six o'clock still every morning to try and get everything yeah, done. Because yeah. you know, yeah. we've got obligations to provide a, a great teaching experience for our students. But at the same time, we're seen as experts in our field. So you're constantly reading, you're constantly trying to update your knowledge, you're constantly trying to... There's the whole research world, including writing, data analysis and trying to get grant money. You know, yeah. it's it's it's, it's just impossible. And I think that's the thing. I definitely had I reached burnout because I couldn't do all those things. And I actually went back to work and I, I remember being at work, she had this phase return and and I was looking at the emails and and I was thinking about, you know what, if I come back, nothing's gonna change because this environment hasn't changed. And I know my personality won't do well in this environment because I couldn't all those things you listed, I couldn't do half assed. Like mm. I have to do all or nothing. So I knew if I went back to it, the teaching would get 100%, the admin would get 100%, the research, I was still trying to publish research whilst being part-time, the knowledge transfer would get 100%. Mm. Like, And it's just like, they're my kids and my marriage. And it's just like, well, hang on a minute. Like, what about you? What about your health, your mental, physical health? And I think we are being stretched and it comes down to, you know, learning about your own needs and physical and mental health needs and, you know, in some ways working to rule and knowing what your limits are and recognizing when you've got close to those limits. For me, you know, working self-employed and being a consultant and being freelance is the best thing I ever did because it gives me control over that. Like I still work incredibly hard. I've got high work ethic, but I have to get my kids up to leave the house at 2.30 every day, quarter to three to get them. And then I'm with them and I have to do certain things. So I manage my stress in a different way. So life, it becomes a balance that mm. I can control. And I think 
for me, it just felt like everything was out of my control. And that was a really difficult thing to, to get my head around. Yeah. Since you've moved and become a health coach, are you finding that, like we've described two separate stories that have a lot of commonalities. Now you're working with others. Are you finding that everyone else has a very similar story where they've got one stress, then it's another stress is added, then another stress. And it's almost like a, an overwhelming mix of stresses uh, so everyone's kind of got the same story but just different details yeah absolutely so so usually when people come to me and find me it, it, it's with kind of where I was at so it's like they they hit this breaking point where mm. they kind of go I can't do this anymore and we all have that those a lot of people might listen can relate and you've obviously had it I've had it and you kind of get that crossroad you're like well I've got to make a decision here I got to suck it up or I got to but but you but they kind of internalize to go well, that means I'm a failure so no one can know and being a health coach I think men are more inclined to come to me because it's not therapy so they can justify it and rationalize it well I'm seeing a health coach mm. you know I'm going to lose some weight and manage my stress and I just they know they're not right they know they feel broken they know they feel exhausted but it it's not as scary as say reaching out to a therapist and admitting that I'm struggling and when they start talking it's very much I'm like so tell me what you're obviously here because you know something's not right. Tell me what what are you experiencing? And it might be, you know, work's really stressful at the moment. And then we do a stress history, as you say, like go back and I kind of go, okay, so let's just talk about in the last 10 years, 20 years, what events in your life, good and bad. So we start like people don't realize, you know, getting married is a stressor. Um, having doing your PhD is a stressor, like having a baby, incredibly stressful. Mm. Like all of these events in your life if they're layered upon layered upon layered upon stress or in my case trauma they've got nowhere to go and we look at their kind of automatic coping mechanisms and, and talk about how that served them so a lot of the time it's avoidance a lot of the time it's suck it up or it's self-medicating so alcohol or even in some case drugs or food emotional eating or exercise medicating my exercise and all the things we talked about they, that's just additional stresses on top of it so there's eventually this like explosion and sometimes people get come to me really really broken and oftentimes they're just at that place where like okay we've caught you now let's work back and they don't even recognize you know you mentioned like what are the other things I had this one guy head CEO of a massive company over in Paris and he was um so stressed that he couldn't even like barely speak he couldn't really comprehend and you know he's we used do calls in his office so his, his secretary would schedule his session and I said to him you know have you eaten or drank today he was like oh, no I'm not telling and I was like you're not making any sense like your his blood sugar's obviously dropped he wasn't hydrated so I used to make him eat what we did our session like just have some water and have a bit of food because he just literally like that it was a robot robot he'd be by five he'd walk like a dog he barely ate you know long periods of time without eating and when we look back, you know, he was like, oh, I'm just stressed at work. That's, you know, I just need you to help me with this. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Let's just have a little chat. Like, well, this stuff's happened. And he had a car crash with his family, like, a few years previous to that, which was so significant that he'd again sucked it up. Well, it happened. I moved on, mm -hmm. dealt with it. I was like, but did you deal with it? You know, and subsequently we got him into some therapy. So the work that I do is I'm, I'm not a therapist. I do the lifestyle components, but in order to make room for that, they need to do the therapy alongside it. So mm. he started working with a therapist about some of these things and it just cleared a path to deal with the lifestyle elements because, you know, he still had a lot of things that were in the background that were causing him to have this kind of lifestyle because he was just self-medicating and blocking out and, and work, you know, workaholics. I've read some really recent stuff recently and I can probably admit that I would say I am a workaholic, like, but very well managed workaholic now mm. and a lot of us are in academia and a lot of people are and a lot of people I work with and it's acknowledging that that you are willing to go above and beyond and then you kind of go well what's the impact on your physical health your family da, 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 da. then you can address it you can still work really really hard but you can kind of address it in a different way are there any particular stresses that uh, are becoming more frequent when you speak to clients so you've got like family history say someone passing away or like um the ceo you've got a car crash you, you, people can visualize that being quite a significant stress but is there a little insidious stress that seems to be sneaking into everyone's lives that's coming up more and more in in recent years that people may just not be aware of how impactful it can be 
Mm. There's so many, but I do think just culturally, society, we just have stigmatized stress. So we talk about the stigma related to anxiety and depression. You know, we, and we're doing a lot of work as a society to remove mm. that stigma and open up conversations about this depression, anxiety. And I think that's really helping. But I think the elephant in the room is there's such a stigma about saying you're stressed because it's a weakness. I, I can't get hardly any of my clients to do testimonials for the work that we do. Like honest, open testimonials. Because why would they? They're like, this is my CV. You know, they're successful business people. And then they give me a testimonial to say they've crashed and burned and had a burnout. They're like, well, I'm unemployable. Huh. And that's that's wow. tragic, you know. And I think because it's deemed, well, why would you want to employ someone who's going to burn out again? And why would you want to employ someone who can't hack the stress? And so there's a, a cultural issue, I think, that we have almost backed people into a corner that they have to work in a certain way. And then the micro stress has become the issue, the insidious stress. Like I get people... One of my clients last week, she said to me, I just don't understand, like, you know, I should be feeling much, much better. So I'm a consultant for Rena McGregor, who's a clinical dietitian. And we work along a spectrum of eating disorders, which she works at the clinical end, hypothalamic amenorrhea, red S, so energy deficit syndrome, sport, overtraining, overreaching. And I'm kind of the lower end of the continuum. So tend to look at people who are maybe low energy availability, but accidental low energy availability because mm. they don't even realize that they're doing it. Same thing that happened to me, right? And I work with them and, and there's this one client and she's like, had hypothalamic amenorrhea for, I can't remember now, a period of time and was like, but I'm, I'm back, you know, I, my, I don't understand what's going on. Like I'm, my lifestyle's better. I'm sleeping better. I'm, my period's still not back. My BMI is normal. I've regained weight. What's going on? And I was like, yeah, but it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. And we look at all the micro stressors, being on her phone late at night, uh, saying yes to work that she shouldn't be saying yes to, not seeing family, not having downtime, like not practicing self-care, not acknowledging what they actually need in their life. Self-awareness is just devoid in, the, in our generation mm. because we go from school to academia to jobs to careers, push, 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 go. And, and no one asks you or teaches you about what your needs are. It's always about what can you give us? What can you provide to the world? And I think the most important work I do with people is to recognize what those little micro stresses are and go, hang on a minute, what do you actually need as a human? Even to the point where it's like, well, what's your personality type? So I'm a massive introvert and I didn't know that until I had therapy. Hmm. And I thought, well, I like, I like, I'll stand up in front of 200 people hmm. and speak. I'm hmm. an introvert. And she's like, no, it doesn't work like that. Like, introverts require a lot of introspective time and thinking and get overwhelmed quite quickly by those environments. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, I can see how 15 years of being front-facing of conferences and putting yourself out there was pretty exhausting, right? Mm. That is overlooked. That we are in a society and a culture where extroverts get rewarded. Extroverts is, you know, even social media, you've got to be doing videos now. You've got to be posting all the time. It's like, mm. you have to be up front. But actually, what about people who are quietly getting on with stuff in the background? That can be overwhelming to them. So really getting introspective about who you are what your needs are in terms of even sleep, contact with other people. Do you like to be creative? How do you like to spend your time? What lowers that vibration in your body? What allows your parasympathetic nervous system to be activated? Because actually most people are just switched on from the minute they open their eyes or on their phone <laughs> to the minute yeah. they go to sleep. And they're literally switched on and it's a cultural thing. And it will vary. So to answer your question, is there one specific thing? Not really. It's more generalized. That it'll be it'll be one thing for you, but it'll be different for me. Um, mm. And it's about sitting down with people and going, let's just really get clear about what you need, and is what you need matching what you're giving yourself? No. And there's usually a massive discrepancy, and we try and kind of meet and resolve that a little bit. Tell people. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of social media, mm. see the talk around mental and physical health is definitely getting much more popular people more people are talking about it trying to get more people to be yeah. open about what do you need start thinking about yourself do you think that's a very positive thing or do you think it's it's a message that sometimes gets a bit muddy because everyone has their own opinions on sort of this particular topic i mean you have a phd in psychology yeah. so but you you will have people that don't have those qualifications but they're trying to talk around talk about these issues uh, and 
I've always seen that there's a difference between a facilitator and an expert. Do you think sometimes the message is getting a bit misguided out there or it's just great that everyone's talking about it? It's allowing people to sort of come out and be a bit more open than previously they wouldn't have been before. I think it's great that people are talking about it. I do think we are removing some of that stigma, but I think there's a secondary stigma that when people do come out and go, I'm struggling, they get some help, people rally around. Oh my God, that's really good. Thanks for telling us. Mm. But if you don't get better, they're like, are you still talking about that? You're still depressed. You're still anxious. You're still stressed. Like, haven't you, haven't you fixed that? And, and I sit with the clients I work with, it then becomes this, okay, well, I better not say anything now because I asked for help and, and now I'm not better, so it must be my fault. And so people kind of will repress it again. And I think there's a, an element of, you know, it's okay for celebrities and it's okay for, you know, certain people or people with massive social media following to go, oh, I'm really struggling. And that's brilliant. Again, it opens up conversation. But what about people who haven't got that voice or haven't got that or you know, haven't got that dynamic in their family where they feel like they can speak out? It's not always possible because you might not get that support. There's nothing yeah. worse than asking for help and then it not being reciprocated and it's it's really difficult to, to handle. And when it comes to, I struggle so much with this, Phil. Like I know you do too. I've seen your social media, like just false kind of information or misinterpretation of research. And again, it's the academic, the researcher in me. It's like, firstly, give evidence-based information. If you want to be an influencer, you want to give people information and actually influence them get the facts right go to the right places and find information but in that case interpreting is even difficult so you and I know yeah. like taking a research paper you can read the abstract but then the whole paper just might completely dismiss what was in the abstract so it's really difficult for people so I think as a medium or medium to try and promote messages is brilliant but it hits the post so when people are going I see celebrity trainers, for example, and I almost have to step away from my phone because I get so angry. It's like, mm. God, oh, like I had a really bad day. I've just got off a flight. I'm really, really stressed. You know, I've had four hours sleep. The kids have been up, da, 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 but I was up at four o'clock on the treadmill, smashing that session. I feel amazing. You can do it too. And I'm like, shut up. <laughs> because you know what? That's their world. Like I said to all my clients, your life isn't the same as that theirs you don't know what's going on for them you don't know how much food they eat and you don't know how much sleep they've had you don't know what's going on there we cannot compare across people we're at n equals one are we like it's we're case studies and to go from being academic where i'm looking at big population samples and then having a client in front of me you can't always take evidence from a randomized control trial and apply it to the client in front of you it doesn't work like that same within coaching in snc you can't take the results from a paper and apply it to an athlete because it just might not work it just mm. because it worked in a randomized control trial doesn't mean it works in one yeah. specific person so yeah. it really annoys me because actually we don't have enough evidence to back up the claim that exercise and i'll call it exercise to distinguish between physical activity because physical activity is just general movement which is unstructured so walking could be going to the gym but it's not it's not targeted towards a specific goal mm. and it's usually moderate. Whereas exercise is a structured approach to movement where it's targeted towards a specific goal. There's no evidence or there's very little evidence to show that high intensity or high volume of training in terms of exercise is beneficial for our physical and mental health because all of the research is done in moderate intensity exercise or resistance-based training. Mm. And what we're getting is culture of people, especially runners and Again, this is why I get a lot of runners to work with me because I'm a runner too. It's not enough to just do a 5K or park run. You've got to do a half marathon. You've got to do a marathon. Next is like, okay, now it's ultra marathons. It's like, where do you stop? So there's a message that is just completely misconstrued and it's telling people to do more. And I'm like, have you got the solid foundations upon which to add that training? If not, then don't do it. So if you've been up all night with the kids, if you've got loads of stress going on at work, should you be trying to do an Ironman? Probably not. One of the questions I ask people all the time is now the right time to do this? You know, if you've got a lot going on, if you're adding what I call trainer stress to life stress, it's a yeah. recipe for disaster. And and you might not break now, but they're breaking six months, seven months. And they'll be like, oh, I've got this injury. I don't know where it's come from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the yeah. same with training. You can, yeah. You get people that just go all out uh, and they'll survive over the next four weeks. And so, oh, I see, I'm doing the right thing. I've improved. And then it's like the six seven months down the line when their body breaks they're like oh they right maybe I shouldn't push so hard so soon yeah. and it's very similar from a sort of mental well-being situation 100%. as well 
Yeah, it's, it's layered because it's levels of, yeah. of it's stress. It's trainer stress. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's emails in your inbox that you haven't dealt with. Your body doesn't discriminate. It doesn't know. It just knows that there's a demand placed upon you and it reacts in kind. So it will raise cortisol. It will adapt within your body to deal with the stress. And in humans, the stress keeps coming. So it's loaded and it becomes chronic stress. And mm. what actually we're designed to do is to deal with the stress. The stress goes away. We recover. We don't give ourselves enough time to recover because it's like next, 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 next. And not even recognizing that, okay, well, they might go, well, I'm not training, but I went on a two-hour hike. Like, yeah, but that's, that's <laughs> volume. It's like it's, your body hasn't recovered. Like, so no, that's not okay. You know, yeah. you get these questions all the time. Okay, I won't run, but can I go for like a two-hour walk? Or can I? I'm like, no, you've got to rest. <laughs> so we're just not very good at resting. And I think that comes down to a mindset thing. Like we become high achievers or we are high achievers for a reason and that creeps into our health and it creeps into across lots of different elements of how we work so being a high achiever doing amazing things in life is brilliant but it's also something that we have to be careful that it can make it can break us if we're not careful you know it's mm. it can be it can be good and bad and and being aware of being a high achiever and pushing yourself and being an elite athlete and working to the top level is great but actually can you also then be use that self-awareness to make sure that your recovery is on point? So it's like, can you be perfect at that? Because that's actually what's going to get you the gains. It's, mm. That's the stuff that you're going to get better at. Yeah. I remember seeing, a, I think it was an Instagram post where uh, they said, okay, before you think about your training, have you got these three key things properly organized? Food, water, and sleep. Yeah. And at the time I looked at it and I went, ah, oh, <laughs> I maybe hit one of those. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, I mean, that's me personally. Yeah. So I was just like, ah. Oh. And I think uh-huh. a lot of the times, sometimes if I've got a, a little niggle or some kind of injury, you know, I could try and link it back to some kind of movement deficiency or something like that. But it does seem to correlate with the time where I've been particularly busy at work. Stress. It's yeah. meant I've slept less. Stress. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's so many factors that come in, but we, you know, we shouldn't be missing these. And it's not rocket science. This, this is the no. thing. This is where I get really frustrated. And it's kind of why I, I decided to start a podcast. So for quite a long time, in the work that I do, I get invited by other people I revere and experts to come and either work for them. So I'm a consultant for quite a few different people, other mm. coaches, clinical clinicians, because they recognize the work that I do. And they go, this is really important. On the ground, on the, on the coal face, like people don't understand it because they don't even see it as a problem. So... It's almost like I'm shouting into a massive cave, like, can you all just pay attention? Because no one wants to hear it. It's not sexy. It's not cool. It's not attractive. I've written many articles for, like, on a women's runner magazine and different things over the years. But the same article, two pages down, they'll be talking about, do this program for your marathon trial. I'm like, no, like, you can't be selling that to people. And also asking me to write an article about the importance of not picking up a random article, a training program, that it has to be bespoke. And you go, like... So do you know what I mean? It's like we're paying lip service to it because it's not scientifically pleasing to hear. It's not It's not rocket science. It's simply awareness about, as you say, those components and the pillars of health. And it's like, well, if you haven't got those solid foundations, you cannot add the training. So for me, I call it like I set up a group called Runwell and it's about like, can we get people to manage sleep, nutrition, movement and self-care? And self-care is such a big topic. But if we get all that right first, then we put the training on top suddenly they're better people performers mental health physical health etc but it's just not cool it's not like it's a sexy topic to kind of talk about but I think there's so many more people I see breaking or burning out that it's almost like being forced upon them as opposed to them seeking it out yeah do you think because those components like sleep like food like water they're seen as obvious Mm. and because of that that is the reason why they're mostly or quite often overlooked or underappreciated because they think oh yeah that's obvious and then they don't realize that the perception of their own actions are not aligning with what's actually happening yeah I think it just looks too easy people want they they, they want the program the next exercise regime the next training program they want the next scientific advancement to bring Mm. their train oh that's the thing I need you know low carb like the amount of people I work with who go you know again corporate or mums or people working really really hard in lots of different areas of life and they're trying to train for a marathon and they're trying to go low carb so that they can run on fat adapted and I'm like 
do you know how hard that is? And also, how do you know you're fat adapted? Like you just that takes forever out. as well, doesn't it? Yeah, really and we and unless you get someone in a lab to basically identify that cross point where it happens, yeah. you don't know. And but there was a period of time where people were doing that, and we're now picking up the pieces where we got a lot of young athletes or middle aged people who are who did that. They were like, I'm not going to lie, I yeah, I I basically just cut out carbs and I was training for an ultra (laughs) but they don't understand the physiology and you kind of go okay let's just let's just break this down and strip it right back to basic physiology and go okay do we understand what macronutrient is do we understand the role in which these play upon your physiology when it comes to energy and and people don't and when you explain to them go oh that's why I tank that's why I feel like shit you know elite athletes can do it it's a totally different ball game because They've got, you know, a multidisciplinary team around them. They've got testing and they can allocate, you know, people to look at certain aspects and they've got shitloads of time to recover. Mm. But you or I or anyone else, we're adding it to life and life stress. And it's people go, yeah, 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 my, my, my food's fine. My sleep's good. Like I could sleep a bit better, but I have to get up again. A bit like yourself, this, this one guy was like, yeah, but I get up at five o'clock in the morning to do a two hour run and then I take the kids to school and then I'm working all day. And I'm like, well, why are you getting up at five o'clock in the morning to do a two-hour run when then you've got the rest of the day and you wouldn't eat till lunchtime? And it's like training fasted on top of that. It just adds stress to the body. You know, you're already stressed. You're not sleeping very well and you're waking up fasted and doing a training run. And it's it's just crazy. And um, we're just breaking people. And I think they don't want to think it's as simple as that. They want to come to people like me or whoever to go, yeah, we'll just give you a more sophisticated training program. You're feeling tired, but actually, if you just change training, no, ignore your training for a minute and let's get right to the basics and fix that. And that's mm. hard for them to accept because it's almost too easy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Physiologically easy, but behaviorally and psychologically really, really hard because it's the yeah. behavior change element to try and change habits. And mm. people have almost an addiction to that exercise and that need to push themselves and punish themselves, really. Um, yeah. Yeah, flog themselves really, really hard. Do you think that's the way it's going? I, I spoke to uh, a nutritionist a while back and he almost feels like, well, I'm not a nutritionist in what people think in, I am. It's I'm more of a behavioral nutritionist. So it's changing behaviors, changing perceptions of stress, of yeah. tasks. Do you think that's think the direction he, that we need to go? Do you say that was a he? Yeah. So he sounds like a really good nutritionist because I think – too often too quickly people come and they're like so can you just write me a nutrition plan yeah so I did a couple of years ago I did I, I, I upskilled I mean I'm always learning the eternal geek but I did a nutrition therapy course so I don't practice as a nutritionist but I know enough because I was like I need to just make sure I'm upskilled a bit CPD wise and and I'm like no you're not you're not even ready for a nutrition plan because it's not about the nutrition plan and most people would admit go yeah I probably wouldn't follow it anyway you know because that's not really what the problem is. The problem is all the other components and it's understanding like what they need. Yeah. And, and to change because pretty much every woman I work with under eats in terms of the energy demands that they're asked of themselves. So just purely from like the work, the job that they've got and then the training, because there's not enough time of the day to almost consume the amount of food they would need to be in energy balance. So they're always working in an energy deficit. Mm. And it's like, they're just crucifying themselves and it's really, really hard to perform. And then they're like, well, I'm not performing optimally, so I need to lose weight. <laughs> so they get into this thing, well, I need to, I can't eat more because I don't want to gain weight because I want to perform well. And it's like, no, but you need to fuel to perform well. Forget about the weight thing. The weight will look after itself when you're burning and energy expenditure is happening as a result of the exercise. Mm-hmm. It blows their mind to think that they potentially might have to eat more food or eat more frequently. So with stress, what we really are trying to do is think about what is happening when we don't eat. It's a stressor. The body doesn't know why we're not eating. It just essentially goes, okay, there's been a period of time where this person hasn't eaten. It has to adapt. So it has to release energy stored to be able to help that person get their blood sugars back up and survive to the day. But if nor is that to happen, cortisol goes up. So the stress hormone increases. Mm-hmm. So by perpetually keeping ourselves like underfueled or going for like gaps longer than two to three hours of you know eat without eating something which just that's a stressor and people don't see that they're like yeah it's all right I'm like no you need to eat more frequently so it's not about eating more food per, per se potentially it could be just like can we eat more frequently and that's where the behavior change comes in it's trying to get people to change those habits to think okay this is about fueling my 
body and taken away a massive stressor that they didn't even think was a stressor. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Bernie, that, that was brilliant. I mean, I know I said at the beginning of the podcast that I really wanted to talk to you about certain issues because I knew our stories were quite similar. And a lot of it comes down to me fearing being like that again. So having knowledge around how to perceive different stresses and the openness to become more aware of how they may be affecting me, I think is really great. Mm -hmm. Is there any way that if anyone has any questions or they feel they want to contact you about dealing with their stress, uh, how is the best way to contact you? So they can find me at just my website, which is brentdancy.co.uk or I'm on Instagram predominantly. Twitter scares me. It's too loud and people shout. Yeah, I'm, each I'm with you there, definitely. <laughs> um, everyone's got an opinion, which isn't always a good one. And so I stay away from that, those arguments. So yeah, Instagram, I'm quite happy to be on there. But yeah, people can just check out my, my website. But just to kind of, before I finish, to say, just to reiterate what you were saying there or to address that point of how do we make sure it doesn't happen again or how do we, Maybe if people are listening and they're feeling like, okay, I can relate to this. Now, what do I do? The first thing is, is literally um, self-awareness and and thinking about what your needs are and and where they need to be addressed. Because for me, people say to me all the time, oh, but you're you're a stress coach. You must never get stressed. I'm like, ask my husband, (laughs) ask my kids. There's a difference between acute momentarily stressed and then chronic stress. And I think the best advice I give people who are dealing with chronic stress is to respect it in the first instance. And for me, that's about, I almost treat my stress the way a type 1 diabetic would treat their blood sugar. And it's like, I'm very aware of it, acutely aware of it and, and monitor it and know that, hang on a minute, if I'm feeling off, what am I not doing that I should be doing? It's usually sleep in my case. And just get really clear about what I'm not doing and get back into that routine. Usually it's crossing boundaries and giving people too much of my time. So I think for you personally, yeah, that might be something to think about and um, and just kind of give yourself that space to know that actually you're more important than anything else. You know, pushing yourself with the people doesn't really matter. Mm. It's definitely a continuing learning curve. That's brilliant, Bernie. Thank you very much. You're so uh, well. I'll, welcome. I'll speak to you soon. Hopefully you'll pop by St Mary's soon Mm, maybe come say (laughs) hi to Paul and then (laughs) I might be around as well yeah exactly (laughs) brilliant cool thanks Bernie cheers thanks for listening to this episode of the progress theory all of the details and links featured are in the show notes on our website theprogresstheory.com if you want to hear and see more follow us on YouTube or Instagram just search the progress theory and we'll see you in the next episode.